Hey everybody, welcome to In The Weeds, I'm Matty Farrell. First of all, sorry for being a day late this week. Parenting two and a half year old twins in lockdown can take its toll on editing a podcast. I think uh, maybe that's a new series all of its own. Anyway, this week we get to know Mr. Tom Hetherington, who you might know from behind the Northern Restaurant and Bar shows. Looking at the creative Northern offerings that we have from city life to rural life. Uh, Tom's love of running. Uh, but anyway, Tom is a true king of the North. So let's, well, anyway, you should all be staying alert. So you should be ready for this one. So enjoy and we'll speak after the show. I'm absolutely delighted to have Mr. Tom Hedrington, Chief Exec of the Northern Restaurant and Bar Exhibition, to join us today. How are you, Tom? Uh, I'm fine. Yeah, all things considering, life is okay. Thank you. Cool. So, to, on, on the Northern Restaurant and Bar show, obviously, you were, I think it was the next day or 24, 48 hours that you were, the, the bar show was actually going to go live and kind of stop there, didn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty horrific, really. I suppose we ended up, um, literally on the horns of the, the dilemma um, in that it was over over that period that, that um, Boris Johnson and, and the government did a kind of major U-turn as to what the policy was. So yeah. it was trailed Monday morning that they were suddenly going to recommend um, that people didn't go to restaurants and bars and didn't attend mass gatherings. Um, and it, it left us no choice, really, but to to postpone the event, which was a fairly grueling thing to have to do with 24 hours notice. But it was um, it was the right thing to do on every level. Um, and I think really in, in amongst all the, the kind of chaos that we were going through as, as organizers, we we just felt for the industry, you know, because you, you could see immediately that even though they weren't at that point officially closed or told to close, suddenly all these operators were just realizing you know the the government has just told people not to go to restaurants and bars and i think everyone started to grasp the the gravity that even if this was relatively short term you know this this was catastrophic so i think that week as we were unpicking nrb and and kind of coming up with our contingency plans for postponement the entire industry was in meltdown you know everyone had their own problems to deal with everyone was calling everyone to head office or getting all the teams together and trying to work out what the hell they were going to do Mm. And yeah, you have rearranged it for October, I believe, haven't you? Yeah, we we have. We've got a really good relationship with the venue. And we we move very kind of quickly and, and very decisively. And and yeah, we've got our dates booked in for for October. Um, and I think like everyone else, we just have to keep a, a watching brief. You know, we we all want the industry to be back in October. We all want some semblance of normality. You're seeing different countries doing things at, uh, at different rates to different timescales at the minute. Um, the government have talked about starting to bring hospitality back in, in mid-July. But you'll find other operators who are a bit twitchy about the idea of becoming of coming back before Christmas. So I, I think as long as, long as you, you can, you've got to kind of hold your nerve and just sit tight and just let things unfold a little bit. The, the, otherwise, you get caught in too much navel-gazing, just going around in circles about all these endless possible outcomes and endless possible scenarios and I think we just need to let it play out a little bit. How have you ended up in the hospitality industry and like is it been ingrained in you from an early age? It's a, it's a funny question actually it's, uh, it's a source of amusement to my, my parents even to this day because as a kid I wouldn't eat anything. I think there's probably only about four things that I, I, that I ate up till probably going to secondary school and at one point they had to take me to a kind of clinic because I, I wasn't sorry here's a ruby now Ruby. yeah I wasn't putting on weight I wouldn't eat anything nearly gave my mum a, a nervous breakdown so she finds the the idea that I'm now in the food and drink game just slightly uh, slightly ridiculous but I think for me for me it was a combination of things really I think probably the, the biggest thing was coming back to Manchester from university uh, I came back to Manchester in 1995. I just spent three years in, in Liverpool University, um, a city I, I adore to this day. And that was around the time that this whole, just the, the, the initial blossoming of, of kind of food and drink in the UK was just starting to happen. Cities were becoming cool again. People were opening bars. People were starting to open little restaurants. Um, 
it, it, there was such a change in mood. Uh, I remember when we were in Liverpool, places like Bar Bar opened, uh, Tom Bloxham's place, um, which was amazing and, and mellow and heebie-jeebies. And then back in Manchester, you had places like on Whitworth Street, you had um, Alaska and Canal Bar and Dry Bar and Isa Bar up in the northern quarter. Places like Grinch were doing food. And then you went on to restaurants like uh, Sarasota and Machinaire, uh, which was Oliver Payton's, where Jason Atherton was the was the head chef there, famously, which was incredible. So I kind of came back to this city as a as a young guy, just as as urban culture, city living, food and drink became became the new thing. And uh, I found out actually that I, I really quite like food, and and I got quite geeky about it. We lived in uh, Victoria Park and then had a, had a flat in West Didsbury, which was full of fantastic little restaurants and bars, many of which are still there to this day. Um, and then we ended up living in the city centre right, right in the midst of it. So I, yeah, I, just, I just became I became what we used to call disparagingly, uh, disparagingly a, a real kind of napkin sniffer. I was a real geek for all the, all the chefs and the, the restaurants, and uh, it just became a bit of an obsession. Um, and a couple of years after I left uni, I ended up going to work for a nightclub magazine, an international nightclub magazine, uh, which was based out of Stockport. They did a really cool bar magazine as well called Theme. Uh, so we got to hang around a lot of kind of bars and restaurants through that. Uh, and then a little later on, I, I got poached by a wonderful lady called Edwina Lilly to go and set up um, a website for the restaurant industry, which is called therestaurantgame.com, which was going to make us all dot-com millionaires by Christmas. And it, it didn't. It tanked spectacularly and ate all the investors' money. But we, we ended up doing a, a classic pivot, to use the, the word that everyone's using at the minute. And we flipped it offline into Restaurant Magazine. So I ended up being the marketing and events director there and, and launching things like the 50 Best Restaurants in the World Awards and, and so on. So I, I suppose it, it, was an, it was a combination of things, really. It was, it was mainly moving back to Manchester and being in the city at a time when food and drink became the thing, um, as much as music and sport was. Suddenly it was all about food and drink. Um, and it was partly taking what I, what I knew as a job, which was publishing and media and, and slowly worming my way professionally into the into the food and drink industry which meant I got paid to schmooze rather than having to do it on my own personal budget which was wonderful and uh, yeah that's where where it all began a lot of chance and happenstance really in Manchester changed so much a lot of people calling it the London of the north now you, you must have seen a, a huge change from the places you talked about earlier on mm-hmm. to now uh, and when you go in there must be about at least 100 cranes you see on a weekly basis yeah, yeah, it, it's generally about eighty to hundred cranes, depending on on what's going on. I think it's more outside outside any of the city in Western Europe, including London. I think maybe only Toronto, at the last count, had more had more cranes up than Manchester, which oh. is is just staggering. As someone who grew up here through the seventies and eighties, and uh, I remember what it was like. And you look back occasionally, you see these videos on social media of not not just Ancoats, but like the heart of the city, the main core of the city, and it looks like something from the 1940s. You know, it's just un, unrecognisable, really, from where where it is now. In terms of what's driven that, you need to be careful about over-romanticising things. You know, this whole, we're Manchester, we do things different, you know, we're so creative, blah, 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 blah. I think there's a lot of other northern cities, not least Liverpool, who would claim to be just as, as kind of creative and entrepreneurial and have as much energy um and as much kind of counterculture grit and graft as uh, as manchester would i think for me it's a combination of probably probably three major things i think it's partly like you say population its audience that that is always a fundamental thing if there's more people there to to be part of something or to consume something you create a bigger market you create more momentum and more scale and manchester's quite lucky that we sit in the middle of that M62 corridor. I know it's not always that easy to get along it, but it can, in theory, be traversed. And if you're in Leeds or across in Yorkshire, it's easy to get to Manchester. If you're in Liverpool, it's easy to get to Manchester. If you're in any of the smaller towns and cities, whether it's Preston or Chester or wherever it might be, it's really easy to get into Manchester. But if you're in Liverpool, I think Leeds or, or York can feel quite a long way away and vice versa. So we're, we're lucky that in the biggest concentration of humanity outside London and South East, Manchester's naturally there at the centre of the transport network. Um, and and you, can't, you can't kind of undervalue how important that is. Um, 
I then think we were blessed we were blessed with some really core kind of structural structural infrastructure really so things like the airport and the universities have been massive to the success of um, Manchester uh, they've really made a huge difference the the airport I forget whether it connects you to 150, 200 international destinations direct now, but that is hugely important for bringing in business and inward investment internationally. And the universities pump out so much raw talent. And I think Manchester is the first city now outside of London where more than 50% of our graduates are now staying in the city. Uh, but it's almost like a raw material. It's like mining or farming or digging stuff out of the ground to keep producing those talented graduates from MMU, from Salford University, from Manchester University, from UMIST back in the day. Tens and tens of thousands every year is, is an enormous natural resource and I, I see stats that we have like the biggest student population in Europe or something crazy and, and that is a real asset and then I think the other thing is down to people but it's not about some kind of endemic Manchester species that we, we all somehow have you know Manchester genes it's individuals within politics within business people like Howard Bernstein and Sir Richard Lees at, at the council I think we were lucky that we had people at a point in time who had a real ambition and a vision for the city. But not only that, they were really smart, really ruthless political operators as well. And they knew how to get things done. Um, they never got caught up in any of the kind of the infighting or, you know, going head to head with the government or falling out with each other that you, you see in other cities. Although not everyone would agree with the politics of the people, the fact is that we did have strong leadership, they did have focus, they did have direction, they had the ability to deliver, and they never wavered in wanting to do what they felt was best for the city. And that's really kind of pulled us through that last 20 year period. It's a good point. So I think Ancoats is fantastic. Places like Air. Uh, how about you? Where do you like to venture out? So I, I love Ancoats in the Northern Quarter. I, I lived or worked around that area for nearly half my life. So I, I love it. It's absolutely in my bones, that place, and I, I love seeing it change. Um, but I think there's probably, there's probably two areas of the city that, that for me, are, are most interesting. And I, I think this, again, goes back to the idea of, of what Manchester is and why Manchester is, is unique. And I think Manchester has a scale of a city where... It's still small enough that you can make things happen. You know, there's a, there's a set of people where once you get to know everyone and you've got your network and you've got your respect and you know who to call on, whether it's in the media or in finance or in property or in politics or whatever, once you've got your little network, you know, and I've been, I've been working in the city for nearly 25 years now, it is, you can make good stuff happen. You can pull everyone together quite quickly. It's almost like a village, but it's a big enough city that the impact that you have is really massive. You know, if I did something wonderful in Glossop, that's great, but it's still only a little tiny thing in Glossop. Whereas if you do something in Manchester, it really resonates, changes things for a lot of people, a lot of businesses. So that, that makes it quite an exciting city. And I think it's also hitting a tipping point where, it's hard to talk about Manchester in terms of the city centre anymore. I think if you spoke to multiple operators 10, 15 years ago, they, they almost felt like, well, I've got a restaurant in Manchester, tick. I've got one in Liverpool. I've got one in Leeds. I've got one in Newcastle. I'm doing it. Whereas now you could argue that for somewhere somewhere like Bundabust or somewhere like Rudy's, somewhere that's quite accessible, you could arguably have three possibly even four sites in city centre Manchester and they wouldn't cannibalise each other in the least mm. because the city is big enough that it's starting to create these really distinct networks in a way that you have in London but 10 times more so. Mm. You know, you could do that in Manchester. You could arguably have, uh, you know, Bundabust have got one up near Piccadilly in the Northern Quarter. They've yeah. got one down near the University campus in Oxford Road. You could arguably have one around Deansgate spinning fields as well quite easily. You can maybe get another one in there as, as well. Um, so I think Manchester's at a fascinating point where these, these different villages within the city and these neighbourhoods are starting to flare up. And the two that I think are most interesting pulling in two different directions really i think salford the what would have been the city center of salford just over the river from manchester is, a, is an endlessly fascinating place um it's a blind spot to a lot of people in the city but you can be 
five minutes walk from spinning fields and, and you feel like you're a world away once you cross that river. And with all the high level rail lines and everything, it's always got quite a kind of New York-y Shoreditch feel to me. There's a lot of fantastic old buildings. There's a lot of um, a lot of empty spaces. There's a lot of artists over there, studios um, like Islington Miller over there and Paradise Works were over there. Atelier Artwork were over there till uh, recently. You've got Salford University and the university kind of feeding through and there's actually madly there's a, there's an enormous beautiful park there in the in the crook of the river the Irwell, just by the university and probably some of the best residential developments in the entire city around timekeeper square and vimto gardens it's it's beautiful it feels you still feel in the city and of the city but it, it feels like someone's dialed it down a little bit so it's a bit like going over the river to, to brooklyn in new york from manhattan or something at a, a kind of smaller scale it has that sort of feel to me and we've seen people like porter who, who've got um, a tapas place in Chester and also by Altringham Market. Uh, they've opened a site there, which is doing really well for them, just on, on Chapel Street. And there's some other really interesting little operators who are starting to move into that district. And I think that area, for me, has bags of potential from Greengate, where all the big residential stuff is going up all the way out to the university is, is a fascinating part of the city. And there are, there are deals to be done. There's still some really good deals to be done on sites for up and coming younger operators who, who want to get a foot on the ladder. And then the other side for me, I find fascinating is a bit of a reaction to the fact that spinning fields pulled everyone in the city down towards the river, down towards Dean's gate. It really tipped the whole city on it, on its axis. Uh, what Mike Ingle did there was incredible. And I, I don't think anyone could quite believe how successful that was. But you look back to around Piccadilly station and the area around there, the footfall is off the scale. And you're so close to academia. You're so close to all the hotels. You're close to the Northern Quarter. Obviously, you've got Piccadilly Station right there on your doorstep. And there's so many developments starting to come up around there. And the Northern Quarter is starting to kind of stretch out almost to, to reach it. So you've had Cultureplex um, go in there, uh, the, the kind of Juicy Street warehouse there. You've got Campus, which is coming on strong by Capital and Centric as well, which had higher ground, the pop-up restaurant in, some fantastic stuff. London Road Fire Station will happen the mayfield development which is a multi-billion pound development uh which is going to have a 16 acre park in the middle of it is just at the back of piccadilly station and then the old umist campus is going to be fundamentally redeveloped as well and then at the back of the station people haven't quite settled on a name for it yet but that kind of east village where a lot of the um craft breweries are people like cloudwater and track and manchester union um that's a brilliant area to me and there's so much re residential development starting to happen in and around there so i think there's going to be a real cluster around piccadilly station and that that's going to come alive over the next three years or so so if, if money was no object i'd be picking a prime site somewhere somewhere in the heart of things where your footfall's nailed on but if i if i was more entrepreneurial and i i needed you know i needed a space and i didn't have a big budget and i was willing to grow slow and let an area development then i think i'd be looking either around that chapel street salford area or somewhere in the shadow of piccadilly station i think that's where there's opportunity yeah, I think Manchester, the, the thing Manchester has, which I always, always think is the trams. The trams, I think, are fantastic. The, the, you, have a, you have a good scene after work in Manchester. That, the, the connectivity of that is, is game-changing. And I think, yeah. as well, I, th I, I agree with what you say about the little villages. I mean, I, I took a walk through Ancoats not long ago, and I like, obviously, I'm really into my coffee into Ancoats Coffee, a little walk over the, the bridge, and then you've got Pollen Bakery there now. It's kind of like a, a, a really nice city centre living, but you're literally, like you say, you're, you're probably five, more, five, ten minutes from spinning fields that way as well. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a good balance. And I, I think the other thing that, that Manchester got in on very early is, is the idea of city centre living as well. Yeah. Um, depending on which figures you look at there's kind of anywhere up to a hundred thousand people living in the city center um we moved into an apartment in the city center in 99 kind of in the, the first second wave of um people living in old loft apartments uh, we were in a, an old cooperative tobacco factory just in angel meadows people thought we were crazy back then but i know when we moved in we were relatively pioneering but if you go back five years before that maybe 10 years I think it was officially 500 people living in the city centre. Uh, now you're talking kind of 100,000 people. And all of those people, they've all moved to the city centre, not because 
they want a quiet life or because they're struggling. They, they've moved there because they've got decent incomes, they've got disposable income, they quite often don't have kids, uh, and because they like city life. You know, they've moved to the city centre because they want to walk out their office and go for drinks or dinner after work and then know that they can walk home. You know, they, they want to enjoy it. So that 100,000 people, if we take that as a figure, I think the average in the UK was that people were eating out, out of home eating three to four times a week and it was increasing all the time, kind of getting up to the level that it does in America. I wouldn't be surprised for people who choose to live in the city centre and can afford to live in the city centre if it wasn't double that. Mm. So suddenly you're saying, okay, well, if those 100,000 people all eat out, even if it's four or five times a week, and that could be breakfast, lunch, dinner, whatever, you know, let alone eating out eight times or ten times a week, the amount of extra bums on seats that's putting in operators around the city is absolutely astronomical yeah. uh, and I think that's been that's been a huge driver um, and linked to that because I mentioned the point about audiences before why Manchester has become the city it is Manchester's audiences the the other big thing has been tourism mm-hmm. uh, tourism in Manchester when I was growing up there was just impossible to even imagine you know you had away football fans and People who might have a regional office of, you know, Wernham Hog Paper Merchant or whatever might come up to go and check in on the office or make someone redundant. And that was about it. Whereas mm. now we're, we're all addicted to kind of weekend breaks, to city breaks. You know, we all want to go to Lisbon or Porto or Copenhagen or Bologna or, you know, wherever it is. But a lot of those people, they all want to come over to Manchester because it has an international resonance and a brand for the nightlife, for the culture, for the football, for the sport. Um, and the occupancy rate and the, and the rack rates are just crazy. I yeah. think we've doubled, we've doubled the number of hotel rooms. It's like 11,000 hotel rooms or something crazy in the city centre. It's doubled in about the last five years. And the occupancy rates are higher than they've ever been. And the rates achieved are higher than they've ever been. And again, none of those people have got a kitchen in, or very few have got a kitchen in their room. They're all coming to the city and they all want to eat out and they all want to, they want to drink as well uh, and enjoy the city. And... I saw somewhere that this is a couple of years old now, but I saw a stat that our hotel pipeline in terms of all the planned developments in percentage growth was the biggest in the world. It was bigger than Chinese cities. It was bigger than Istanbul. In terms of percentage growth, we had the biggest pipeline in the world. It was just showing no sign of um, slowing down. And I think we're just about to overtake Edinburgh, who currently are in second place for the most international overnight bed stays, kind of incoming overseas tourism. Um, we were, that's kind of where we've got to. And it, again, if you told anyone in Manchester that 20 years ago, they, they would have absolutely laughed you out of town. And I think Manchester's at an interesting tipping point, taking into account whatever, you know, wherever the spinning of the COVID wheel might leave us. Um, I think Manchester was at a tipping point where the majority of the business still comes from locals and residents, but more and more of the business was coming from tourism. In London, it was probably the other way around. The majority of the hospitality industry in London or New York or wherever is, is visitor-based, whether it's business or leisure tourism. Uh, Manchester was at this really interesting cusp where if you wanted to survive, and I think it's the same in Liverpool as well, you've got to know your locals and you've got to work to your locals and you've got to build your network and you've got to get the offer right for repeat business. Yeah. But if you ask me... That's where the majority of business is. If you ask me where the majority of growth was going to come from, I would say that it's probably tourism. And you have to shift your offer and shift your marketing subtly to take advantage of that growing tourism market. As I say, COVID is a bit of a, a randomizer. We'll, we'll see where we end up out the other side of this a year, three years down the line. But I, I think northern cities in general, and Manchester in particular, have got this really interesting grappling thing of switching from focusing on a local repeat audience to focusing on a one-off tourism visitor-driven audience and how how you get the offer right to appeal to both of those and how you get your marketing right is a, an interesting question. The, the three-day culinary weekend break is is a, a definitely a big thing in culture now. I think it's probably the first thing that people are doing, isn't it? Like the, the cities you mentioned there are all places that I would be, you know, pining to get to. And I think everyone does the same thing. You look at what events they can do. They go, what restaurants do, they're all first on the list, I think. Even be, I'd say that's on the list before they pick the hotel, if you know what I mean. I think it's yeah. where, how many restaurants, a great scene, look up areas. I do it myself, but it's definitely important for, for a lot of people. Yeah, I was just going to say, when we lived in, um, in the city centre about, about 2000, we'd, 
we'd really fallen in love with New York. We like going to New York every every year. Um, we had good jobs. We had no kids. Disposable income. I vaguely remember what that feels like, but we, we used to like going traveling. Um, and back then, there wasn't really you know there wasn't really an internet in the way that we know it now there was certainly no social media so i used to go and buy all the zagat restaurant guides literally go and buy the paper guides from um from waterstones and i'd endlessly pour over and analyze all the stats you know food service atmosphere who got who got all the ones out of five and uh you'd, you'd kind of pick out your places danny mayer's places always featured really highly so gramercy tavern and union square cafe and so on so yeah you do all your paper research and then you'd have to phone because you couldn't book online and they only opened the bookings normally about 90 days, three months out from, from when they released, uh, released the table. So yeah, you'd, you'd be on the, you'd be checking the calendar and then the minute you were three months out from your trip, literally for your Friday, you'd be phoning three months out and then you'd be phoning to book your Saturday restaurants, hitting redial on the phone, desperately trying to, um, <laughs> to get through. It was, uh, it was fantastic. It all feels slightly antiquated now it's the sort of thing if i told my teenagers about that they they probably wouldn't even look around from the xbox to be honest they'd just ignore me no that's true i think uh, it's all a, a typical thing you can have your, your your whole experience done for you in, in seconds and, and the moment you land you can be it can just be planned out for you there's like you can pin everything favorite everything it's just too easy yeah. Uh, it's great though. I heard um, it, it is good. I heard um, really interesting thing. I was at a, a kind of visitor economy conference in in Manchester a couple of years back, and they they had a guy from Google there. And considering how fast the world moves, this is probably massively out of date now. But I thought it was quite interesting at the time. But he said one of the biggest growths in search terms they'd had was best. So all anyone wanted to know: if you're going to, to Manchester and you like sushi you just search best sushi manchester if you want pizza you like best pizza manchester and everyone had kind of got their head around that this was just the way that you you look for stuff you know forget all the kind of nuance or anything like that you literally just go on where's the best night out in manchester where's the best place to watch football in manchester whatever it is that's the word that everyone started to use so it was kind of leading to it was leading to opportunities for operators who did one thing, but they did it incredibly well. Mm. So someone like Rudy's is a perfect example where, you know, they've probably got themselves a reputation for being the best pizza in Manchester. And yeah. then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because people are in Manchester for the weekend. Maybe they've gone for a fine dining meal and they just want a pizza the, the next night. Straight on Google, where's the best pizza in Manchester? Rudy's, there's loads of articles saying Rudy's is the best pizza in Manchester. You just go to it. So I, that was one of the things I was thinking about really before when you talk about the difference between dealing with a, a repeat local audience and a kind of a, an audience that maybe only comes to your place once and you just need to capture them, that kind of visitor economy and how you need to use social media differently, how you need to position differently and, and message differently. Yeah, it, it is interesting. I think it makes us lazy in some ways. Yeah. In, in the olden days, you had to do a lot more legwork. Now you can just kind of do best this, best that, or just ask on social media. I'm yeah. going to Porto. Name me the five places I should eat. And, uh, you know, you've got all your answers in like two minutes of replies. True. We, uh, we, we were going to go to Porto before this was um, before this happened, We're probably last week. And uh, that's exactly what we did. I still think the best thing to do, though, is when you're in a venue or you're in a bar and you're speaking to the locals, you'll always find something that, it's just slipped off the map, which you like, yeah. brilliant. Do you know what I mean? I think there's nothing better than that, being fine out from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. Ask, asking the front of house staff or the barman or whatever, that's always a, always a good tip. Always a one. From city life to rural life, which obviously I know is a big part of your persona. You live in Gloss Old Glossop. Old Glossop, yeah. 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 Which is beaut a beautiful part of the world. Obviously, I've, I've grown up around here, um, born and inbred, as, as we say in Glossop, which you're allowed to say if, if you come from Glossop. Um, and I, I always liked growing up here. You know, I wasn't one of these kids who kind of hated the small town they grew up in. I, I always I always really liked it, and I liked the fact that it was so close to Manchester. Um, it was a good balance. But then we went to uni. Uh, Sophie and I met at, met at uni, um, and then we lived in Victoria Park and then West Isbury in the city centre. Um, and then we were we had our first little boy on the way and we were thinking, OK, we probably need to be out the city centre. And we kind of looked at all the places that you look at. We, look at, we looked at Didsbury and West Didsbury and the Heatons and Chalton. And then 
we started looking at what was for the time, bearing in mind this is like 17 years ago, a little further afield, places like Presswich, uh, places like Monton. Um, and we were just trying to find somewhere that felt right. And particularly in Didsbury, the, the house prices were, were just crazy. We were, you know, 30, we'd owned our own house since we were 22, 23 or whatever, and, and we could still barely afford more than a starter home. And it just felt just felt really weird and uh and then one day sophie had come up to see my family in Glossop, and i think she'd got that kind of nesting house buying thing going on and uh she suddenly came back and said i've seen a house in Glossop, and i've put an offer in on it i think we should i think we should look at it seriously right. and i'd never really looked at Glossop like that before Glossop was where i went back to see my parents it was it was where i grew up but suddenly you go back there and you look around with your house buying head on and you yeah. go okay all right half an hour on the train really cheap easy regular commute surrounded by a national park houses are really affordable good schools nice shops you know nice honest proper community town it just felt amazing and, and we we suddenly thought you know why why don't we just buy up here so for, for the price of a, a tiny tiny little terrorist in um in Didsbury, we we got a really nice old house in Glossop. It needed a lot of work doing, but it was it was two cottages not together, grade two listed, 17th century flagstones and mullions and uh, beams and and all that sort of thing. And it, it was just a complete uh, a complete change of life, really. You know, for, for Sophie, probably more than more than me, because I set up my own business again at about that time. So I was I was flat out working on getting the new business up and running and poor Sophie had gone from living with no kids in the middle of the city centre going out all the time to living in a house which needed a hell of a lot of work on it in the middle of the rainiest autumn we've ever had in the hills with a with a crying baby uh, I think it's probably more of a, a culture shock for her than it than it was for me but yeah it was a, it was a total change and it probably took a little bit to kind of get your head around it but I think what you appreciate and you know I'm sure you'll You'll echo this, Matt. But if if you live in a if you live in a world like restaurants and bars and, and like we do art and galleries and exhibitions as well, it can be it's wonderful. I mean, I I adore it. I, I can't tell you how much I I adore it. But if that was all you had to your life, it can become a little contrived or a little artificial. You know, it's it's too much of the good life. You're just floating around canapes, cocktails. It's um. I think you need more than that. And I, I think coming back to a town like Glasgow, which is just a, a real honest down to earth town, no one really knows what I what I do for a job or really really cares. It's just a, a, a kind of normal, normal community, really socially mixed. Uh, and I walk the dog, I go for a pint in the local pub, you know, you, you get your curry from the local takeaway once a week and you go running and walking on the hills. It's just it's a counterbalance to to a lot of, of modern life you know not saying that we don't have modern life here in Gloucester but you know on zoom we have wi-fi all mod cons but um but it is it's such a it's such a shift and although I love places like you know Didsbury I adored living in and I love Chalton and I look at places like Hale and Altrincham and what's going on there and they're all fantastic but I actually like I like the the real division between being in the city centre and being on all the time kind of really really living it up food drink arts culture meeting people events socializing and then just coming back and it's just like you flick a flick a switch it's like that scandy thing of going in hot saunas and then jumping in ice pools i I think it kind of refreshes the soul a little bit to go from one to the other yeah and you see you see on your social media obviously some of the pictures you take in the in the hills there how important the outdoors is to your mental health and and getting out and using it as a form of meditation almost yeah i i think it is uh and i think i think anything outdoors even if you just even if you're just gardening or you know go for a walk walk the dog is it changes everything it's a kind of a reset button you know like turning it off and turning it on again for for your head um but i i like being fit as well you know i like going out i like running yeah um and i think particularly running i never i never got into running until i was about uh, how old would it have been? Mid thirties, maybe something like that. Um, and it was a tough time in the business. So it, if I'm not getting my dates wrong, it's around about around about the time of the kind of the financial collapse, 2008 through till 2011, something like that. Yeah. Um, it was a really, really tough time, and that's when I started running. And I didn't realise at the time quite how meditative it is. You know, it's just 
it's the pace. I know it sounds really silly to say, but it's the pace and it's the way your breathing falls into line with the, the pace, the cadence of your legs and everything. And, uh, you know, you feel the weather on your face, you go out, rain or shine, or you go running at night and it's almost like being in a sensory deprivation tank when you can barely <laughs> see your feet in front of the, uh, the road. And, and it is, you know, I'm, I'm not one for chants and, and yoga and all of that sort of stuff, really. I'm, I'm not particularly new agey, but I think something does happen when you run. And it, it's felt incredibly good for my head. It's seen me through some tough times. I, I lost my little brother to cancer just over a, a year and a half ago. Uh, and he, he was absolutely mad for the hills. He, he loved kind of going up foraging and hunting and, and building dens and all the rest of it. He was like a mini, mini Ray Mears. But being able to go up on the hills and just go with the dog and be away, it sorted my head out. It, you know, I cannot, I cannot begin to tell you how important it, it is and or it was and still is. And I don't think there's a time that I go out for a run. And even though I'm not consciously thinking about stuff, I come back having solved a problem. Yeah. I'm not talking big problems. I'm not talking big problems like world peace or you know, anything like that, but just, you know, a little issue at work or something that needs sorting out or whatever. And it's like it all percolates away in the background. You don't need to think about it. You just go and run and then everything falls falls into place. By the time you got back, you, you feel you've got your head straight. And uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I'd, I'd advise anyone who thinks they don't like running or they're not they're not into running to just start and just keep going and see where it takes you. It took me a while. I mean, I only did it last year for I had meningitis years ago, twenty years ago, and I thought it was twenty year anniversary, and then ended up running the marathon in New York. I never really ran over anything over hundred to hundred meters. So then to get out, and it took me a while to be honest. And it's only and recently. Being in this situation and getting out, it has helped so much. And I agree with what you said. It's the little thoughts that you come back and it's cleared something up. It might not be big or anything like that, but it sort of just levels you out. And I think getting out, yeah, it's, it's meant a lot to me as well. What I would say is your times are pretty good as well. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're all right. They're, they're all right. I set myself um, a challenge. I wanted to get, I used to run the Greater Manchester 10K every year and I wanted to get quicker in minutes than my my age in years and uh i was 42 the last time i did it and um i'm gonna make all my excuses now because that's how competitive i am but i had torn ligament in my in my knee right. and it, it completely wrecked my training i couldn't wreck i couldn't run for six weeks so all the time that you kind of knuckle down and really do your training i, I couldn't run um but i ran it anyway and uh, i got 40 minutes 46 seconds but i was gutted because i'd been running sub 40 minutes in my training, which is probably why I ended up tearing my knee cartilage. So I knew I had a sub 40 in me and I didn't quite get it on the day, but I did get, I did get just over 40 minutes and I got less than my age. I beat 42. Um, and I tried, yeah, I tried running a bit faster the other day. I think I, I only did just under 5k, but I was doing about four minutes, 10 per K, I which that. I was quite happy with. It's four years later. So I'm, you know, I'm pleased that I'm still there in the uh, vicinity. The thing I'll say for running, if you want to, if you want to get your pace up, the thing that makes, all the difference is hill sprints. Yeah. And it's the easiest thing to do in the world around Glossop because you cannot run more than a quarter of a mile <laughs> without hitting a near vertical hill. But just doing endless hill sprints took about two minutes off my time. Yeah. I must say, I do prefer, I'd still do prefer stuff like that. There's the sprinting, the stop-start element to it. I do, do really like that type of training. But you definitely have to do that a couple of times a week to bring the times down. Yeah, yeah, yeah three or four times a week. Mm. I must admit, after I, after I did that um, at forty minutes forty six or whatever with my uh, my lack of knee, I was in agony. My, my body felt wrecked for months after that, and uh, I swore at that point that I would never do a timed run again because I'm so competitive. When you got your headphones or your earbuds in, and you hear that little voice, you know, going, "Your pace is whatever, and your pace isn't good enough." You think you're going out for an easy run, but then that voice chips away at you, and you can't help getting faster and faster and faster. So. Apart from checking my time uh, a couple of times recently, I've, I've barely run a timed run for the last four years because oh. I, I didn't want it to be competitive. I just wanted to run to how I felt and what I enjoyed and what my kind of body was feeling. Yeah. And it seems to have helped. I've had less injuries since anyway, just kind of running to how my body feels. Yeah, that's fair enough. Are you going to try and go for the sub 25k? <laughs> I don't. I don't know whether. I don't know whether it's wise to put another target in there. I fancy getting back under forty minutes again, but I just don't know. You know, I'm raging against the dying of the light. Am I going to do myself more harm than good? Is the question, Matt? There is a, there is a serious, a serious risk that the answer is yes. 
Yeah. The thing is, you know, I, I do think about this and people keep trying to get me to join a running club or, you know, do some fitness related thing that's vaguely competitive. But the running is so important to me that I wouldn't actually want to risk getting over competitive and, you know, badly injuring myself, something that meant that I couldn't run again properly or I couldn't run for months. It matters to me too much. Yeah. And I know it sounds I know it sounds counterintuitive to say it, but the running is a really, really selfish thing. Yeah, it is. For me, I, I don't do it with anyone else. I don't want to do it with anyone else. I don't want to be part of a club. I don't want a, so- a social aspect. You know, I've got my businesses. I've got my partner and my two lovely kids and a really demanding dog. You're on a lot of the time. You know, people yeah. are talking to you, asking you, wanting things a lot of the time. And to, to actually just go out and run on your own and not have to think about anyone or anything else is a is a kind of selfish little luxury. It's like going for dinner on your own or something. You know, yeah. it's, it's a really nice, indulgent thing to do. And I, I wouldn't give that up for anyone. No, I mean, I, I had to join a rowing club for for the training and the marathon because of the procrastination of, you know, not getting out there. So I, it helped, yeah. it helped me in the sense of, cause I, to get all the miles up. Um, otherwise I, I would have, uh, struggled to go out on my own. That's but, but saying that since, since I've had to do that, I found it a much more calming experience. I'll tell you what, Matt, I'll, I'll break my golden rule for you. Once this is over, you come up to Glossop and we'll, we'll go for a run. I'll take you on a run around the moors. Oh, we'll do a fell run. That's it. Yeah, we'll do, we'll do that. Fell running's great. I do I do like off off the off road trail running and fell running. That's good. I did a, I did a couple of uh, cross country ones actually, not long ago. That's that's tough, tough, but yeah, it's good. So I know we'd spoke a little bit about doing a. I'd spoke to you about doing a little docu series. Well, potentially called our food in the north, and I think we were going to look at. It you coming on regarding the, the food scene around the Peak District. And then I think we obviously we're looking at going into finishing it in Sheffield. But has it always been like that? Because there's quite, I think people don't realise there is, and we've talked about cities, but there's a lot going on rurally. And, you know, in it, not just not just the Peaks, obviously the Lake District is getting very renowned now for its um, culinary scene. But do you think, has it always been like that there? Or is, it, is it developed over the last few years? It's a very interesting question, actually, because the Peak District, it was um, it was the first national park established in the UK. Right. And it was established because it was surrounded by industrial cities and, uh, you know, either altruistically all the, all the kind of great and the good felt that their mill workers deserved somewhere green to go out and get fresh air or selfishly they wanted to try and keep them healthy so they'd work harder. But either way... That was the reason it was done. It was close to Manchester and Sheffield and Stoke and all of these places. So it was very easy for, for lots and lots of people to get to. Um, and I did I did read a stat somewhere that apparently in terms of the number of people going to it, it's the second busiest national park in the world after Mount Fuji in Japan. Wow. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> but what's weird in comparison to that is the food scene has always been really, really underdeveloped. If you compare it to what you see in the Yorkshire Dales, or what you see in the Lake District, yeah. where there's, there's breadth as well as depth. It's not just the, the kind of plethora of Michelin star places. It's, there's a whole kind of ecosystem of fantastic eating and drinking uh, below those. And the Peak District has never really had that, and particularly on the Manchester side. If you go over to the um, the Yorkshire side, the Sheffield side of the peaks, there's always been a, an aristocracy there. There's always been big country parks and stately homes. Um, and obviously you've got things like uh, Haddon Hall and all the rest of it out there. You know, it's, uh, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, beautiful little touristy villages like Bakewell and so on. Whereas on the northern, uh, on the Manchester side of the Peak District, the Peak District was always seen as just a place for mill towns. It had hills, it had rivers, so they just built factories there and used it, you know, used it for the the kind of mill town that that Manchester had become. So towns on the on the Manchester side, like um, New Mills uh, or even Whaley Bridge and Gloucester, they were quite industrial. You know, you go back hundred years and they were just full of mills and chimneys and terraces with with walkers in clogs. So. Manchester in the northwest has never had a particularly good opinion of the Peak District. It's never had that long heritage of being an attractive place to go. It was always just seen as a place where the factories were. Um, but that's changed. The, the factories aren't here anymore, but the incredible landscape and the ease of getting there from Manchester or Liverpool or wherever it might be, that's all still in place. So I think lately there's been this new generation of, of leisure 
visitor, um, people who do want to get out of the city and, and just fill their lungs with clean air or, you know, empty their heads and, and get up somewhere where you've got no Wi-Fi signal and you can't see another person around you. They want to escape. They're starting to rediscover the Peak District and they're, they're coming with different wants and expectations in terms of the food and drink offer. Um, and at the same time, I suppose you've got young operators, talented chefs, looking for their their first place to start a business and they're they're finding a lot more affordability in the Peak District than you would if you were in central Manchester or the Heatons or Didsbury or Chalton or Altrincham or you know wherever it might be you can still pick up some spaces out here for a song or you know pick up really small not particularly successful pubs and and put a food offer in there there's there's a lot of opportunity so again it feels to me that the the peak district is just latterly over the last 10 years starting to find its feet as a foodie destination and i think it i think it will really blossom i think manchester and sheffield in particular and sheffield is is really kicking on at, at the minute in terms of its food and drink i think they will they will almost power the Peak District. The Peak District will feed off the, the audience that those two cities bring to this region. It's quite an exciting time, I think. Got a real creative essence to it, I think. And I think, I'd, obviously, it'd be great to pick that back up when we um, when we get out of this situation because bring on an extra importance, having that sort of staycation element for people. Because I think people really need to look inward and, and potentially know what's on the doorstep where... They might not be able to go abroad for a little bit. So what better to kind of really boost these local economies and, and places like you've mentioned. Yeah. And you could see it. You could see, I, I don't know, as we said, we don't know what's going to happen, but you could see a little bit of a boom there. And I'd hope that people start trying to do that, shop local a little bit, find out the produce. I think so. You know, there, there has to be an upside, you know, for every every disaster there's going to be some sort of bounce back or recovery or opportunity in there uh you know the uh the natural optimist in me believes that however painful the experience might be to go through there's going to be something out the the other side and uh yeah i do think the peak district is um well placed and and just touching on one of your points there i was involved in setting up um an initiative which is now called fresh walks run by a guy called uh, michael de paolo um and what that does is it's for want of a better word, it's a networking event, but but really it takes a load of like, like-minded people out of the city and you just go on a big all-day walk together. You go up on the moors, you get a bit lost, you get your feet muddy, you bring your dogs and you end up in a local pub and you all have a big pub tea and a, and a couple of pints together. And you tend to get a really diverse, really interesting set of people, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of talent, lots of enthusiastic people. And it's a lovely, lovely thing. And, and Michael and I came up with the idea to, together and another guy called Michael Taylor, but Michael DePaolo has, has grown this into a, a really kind of big scale business now. And the thing that always used to shock me when we used to bring 20 or 30 people out of Manchester to, to Old Gloucester, which is where we used to start a lot of the walks and go up onto Bleaklow, the vast majority of people would say, I'd never been to Gloucester, but I didn't know this was here. I had no idea. And I, I found it incredible that these people would live in a city and you've got a national park half an hour away. If you've got something like the Peak District half an hour away, I just couldn't believe that people didn't make more use of it and that they, they it was such a blind spot for them. And one of the most enjoyable things, really, of seeing Fresh Walks kick on is, is seeing all these young professionals, people who live in the city centre in apartments, get their head around the fact that the Peak District is right there on their doorstep, that it is so accessible and it's, it's such a fantastic place to go. Yeah. What is your local there, by the way? Is it the Bull's Head, is it? No. Um, I do like the bull's head, um, but I normally go to the Queen's, which is, is literally probably about 75 metres from my house. Oh. Uh, they keep really, really good beers there. They've, they've got all their kind of camera uh, awards, very good seller. They get beer in from the local brewery, probably about three, 400 metres away, which is the Howard Town Brewery. Um, and what I like, I'd, I like a pub to have good food. I do like a serious food pub, but I also like a pub that's a pub. I like a pub that you can go and watch the football in on a on a, sun, a Sunday afternoon or whatever. And um, they're, they're still a real pub. You know, they have a pub quiz once a week. They'll have a musical act on the weekend. It's You get all ages in there, people from all backgrounds. It's a real melting pot. And if you go and watch the football, it's a roughly equal split of reds and blues in there. Um, but they bring out big platters of free butties at halftime for, for oh, chip okay. butties and slices of pork pie and all that sort of thing. Mm. And I, I love it. As, as I say, I, I love food-led pubs, you know, the, the sportsman at Sea Salter or, you know, whatever it might be. You look at the pubs up here, amazing pubs like Parker's Arms and the Freemasons at Whistle and 
over in Yorkshire, the star at Harem or the Pipe and Glass. I love all that, but I like a pub pub as well. And the Queen's Arms, that's my local because it's a pub pub. I can go and watch the football and have a pork pie. You'll need a drink watching United at the moment, wouldn't you? <laughs> it's got me through some tough times, yeah. <laughs> that's probably why I've been doing so much running on the hills, actually, just to cope with the agony of the uh, the Mourinho years and the Van Hal years. But uh, yeah, we've got, we've got Ole at the wheel now. Don't worry, we'll be fine. <laughs> well, we won't get into that. That's a, that's a whole other podcast. No, that'll, that'll be a whole different podcast. <laughs> Brilliant. Obviously, we've spoken about where you live in the peaks of Manchester. Is there anywhere else northern that is a sort of up and coming scene and, and somewhere that you want to, you'll probably head to when this is all over? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the list is endless, really. Um, and although, although Manchester's my, you know, my city on, on my doorstep, I, I'm very much aware that everything we do is there to, to reflect and represent the whole of the North. So I try and work quite hard at, at getting out there and, and getting around the North. So Liverpool, I adore. I think Liverpool is incredible. Um, I, I think everyone loves their university town. Everyone loves where they went to university. But the, there's just something about Liverpool. It's uh, the energy there, the atmosphere, even, even the light. Everything just feels different. The architecture. I, I love it every time I go back to, to that city. Um, really, really always loved Paul Askew and the art school. Yeah. Um, ha- always have great meals, obviously. Gary Usher's place, Wreckfish. Yeah. Um and I had a belting time at Belzan as well, so I'm really interested to try Madre um, and, and also yeah. to see what the Barry brothers do with their with their new place as well. It seems like seems like the docks are, are repositioning themselves in terms of the offer for, for food and drink. So I, I've actually got a real yearning to get back to Liverpool, and we always uh, we always stay up in the Georgian Quarter at Blackburn Terrace, oh, yeah. um, and that's where Sophie and I met. 27, 27 years ago. So when we go back to Liverpool, we feel like kind of teenagers again. It's uh, it's got a magic about it. Um, but foodie wise, I've, I've been blown away with York. York's yeah. an amazing place to go out. Uh, you know the the restaurants up there uh, are just fantastic. You know Tommy Banks has opened there with with Roots, but there's there's three or, three or four other really fantastic places, and it's a great place for drinking and pubs. It's a lovely place to spend a day. Um, Leeds is still really strong, but I I feel that I need to get my head around Sheffield. Um, it's n- it's not that far away from where we are here in Gloucester, but it, it it sometimes feels quite disconnected from the the rest of the north, which in a way is interesting. It kind of does its own thing. It's got its own steam there. Um, but I I think uh, what Luke's done with um, Jaro over there and there's a kind of food market that's come up around that Kellam Island area and a brewery and loads of other little startup businesses are all coming through. I've had two or three people to me over the last few months raving about how Sheffield is starting to change. So I think I'm probably probably overdue a visit there as well. And and then if you look outside the main cities, it's it's difficult to ignore the lakes. You know, I, I can't keep up with all the great places happening happening in the, the lakes you know you you go there to go to long Clume or some of the kind of the big beast old country house hotels but then there's places like lake road kitchen as well which are flying under the michelin radar but i i think are fantastic um and i i do desperately want to get back to the ribble valley as well uh yeah. you know if the if the pub if the pub is the kind of heart and soul of uh, of great britain then to to me the the ribble valley is the the heart and soul of of british pubs you know the the cluster of pubs that you can drink in and eat in to the, the highest standard that are all clustered around that little little kind of uh, damp corner of Lancashire is just uh, amazing. It's a beautiful part of the world. I want to get back to the Freemasons and uh, uh, obviously you've got Seafood Pub Company, I've got another pub, a number of pubs up there, but Parker's Arms has a, a special place in my heart. I think what yeah. Stozy Maddie does there is, is absolutely sensational and I, I'd love to go back there. Yeah, that's cool. I like being at the Inn at Whitewell as well. Tonight. Oh, that's a belter. Yeah, an icon. Yeah, it's a good stay. You can stay there and then go up to the the Parker's Arms. A good little um, a good little weekend. Yeah, and actually Clitheroe's got a, a, absolutely a few things coming on as well. So yeah, so I think people, you know, it's good that you talk about that. Because I don't think people realise the creativity and a lot of these places are, are all independent, which I think is is the key um, for cultures and creativity, which hopefully can thrive through this time as well and become stronger? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, we talked about about maybe the change in the, the kind of the dynamic between London and the, the rest of the UK. 
over the last few years and you know maybe maybe coronavirus will will accelerate this um this thinking but i, I think a lot of people have realized that london isn't the only way to live and it's not the only way to succeed you know it, it as we said before it is um an incredible city and it's not about manchester or liverpool or anywhere else being better or worse it's just about them being different yeah there's a different way of of living your life there's a different way of balancing your life there's a different way of achieving and measuring success and i think that the north actually gives you a lot more potential to do that um and a lot of that comes down to the affordability and the availability of, of property uh you could look at cases anything from even probably the pack horse in hayfield but certainly what sam buckley's done with where the light gets in in stockport um or even what the guys at the, the white swan at, at fence have done uh getting a michelin star there i don't think those opportunities at those prices would have been available for young chefs and young operators at that point in their career in London um, so in in a way it kind of frees you I think the north can free you to take more risks and follow your heart a little bit more because the you know the numbers aren't quite as onerous and also I know this can be a bad thing because sometimes it's nice to have wise old heads advising in your business but you don't need big investors to get something off the ground in the north of England um, there's very little in London which is as independent as it looks they all look like little independent restaurants, but you, you kind of look under the bonnet and the amount of kind of sharing of investors and owners and non-execs and all the rest of it, they, you know, it's it's actually all bigger bigger names involved. And I think you need to be careful that you don't end up with a kind of group thing where you end up endlessly pumping out the, end, the same product because it's all being run through the same people in the same conversations and the same thought processes. I think there's, there's actually more... I know we have to pay the bills with these companies and these restaurants and these bars, but there's more artistic freedom. You can you can take a chance more and you can do your own thing more in the north. You can get off the ground quicker. You can be beholden to fewer people. Um, and I think that's more attractive, especially when you can go from major cities, major airports to the middle of national parks, you know, have your kids having a wonderful little Winnie the Pooh existence and be home in time to put them to bed, all of that sort of thing. You know, who who wouldn't want that? No, absolutely. I think going like what you were talking about pubs, I, I'm very interested in the coffee scenes in these places as well. And I think uh, one of the things we got asked a lot is when's Bolshevik Coffee open? People missing that that like community spirit of the coffee shop. Um, same with the pub. And I think when you look at the towns that you've just said, Sheffield, York, uh, you got Spring Espresso, Broom Brownie, I think it's called. And then you have Sheffield, you got Tampa, Manchester's got a great coffee scene, or the, the creativity, I actually think almost mirrors. Okay, coffee's very on trend, but it, it does kind of, you, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to get a, a flat white or a decent coffee, maybe outside London, you know, maybe yeah. maybe years ago. But I think you see that they're, they're going to be part of a cultural change in what people see. Definitely the, the creative element and the independent thinking. A lot of these are very young businesses. Yeah, I think... Uh... Coffee, baking, and brewing. Baking and brewing. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, the three really interesting areas to, to watch at the minute, how they're changing cities and, and changing neighbourhoods is, uh, is just sensational. I don't think, I think everyone's life would be improved by having a, a pollen or a, or a cloud <laughs> water around the corner from them. You know, who, who wouldn't want that, really? I don't know whether it's just coffee, but I think people are realising how important some of these venues and some places have been into their lives and it's more about what memories it creates to yeah. you know rather than it just being a venue and I think that's what what scares you when you you're getting you're seeing people obviously putting pictures up of like screens in between uh, tables and apps to order which is the very essence against what hospitality is now obviously we don't want to I don't want to get too much into it because I don't you, you're just going to be guessing like we said before you are but um I, th I think I think um you know, you and I did touch on it before. And I, I think for me, every business has to be focused on surviving week to week, month to month. And we all need to be thinking about the, the things that are going to affect us in the short term that we can maybe control. I think the campaigns, the work that's been done by UK Hospitality um, and by JD and Hospitality Union pushing for uh, national rent free or continuing furlough or whatever is, is really, really important. Um, what that middle period has, where we kind of transition back to being in, in restaurants and bars and, and pubs again, 
and how that might work in the in the kind of short to medium term i really don't know i think you can speculate endlessly and tie yourself out and tie yourself in knots but in the long term and maybe this is just the kind of the panglossian relentless optimist in me i cannot believe that humanity will not end up back where it was before um safely you know not recklessly something something has to happen to make it safe but i think people crave that that sense of society and interaction and buzz and bustle and being amongst like-minded people and you know the the interaction that's that's what it's there for and and you know without getting too kind of deep about it this is something that's underpinned human existence for thousands tens of thousands of, of years you know we gather around campfires and uh, now we all hang around in artisan coffee shops but i i just can't believe that that this virus or or anything else is going to slow or change that that underlying need for people to come together and enjoy good food and drink and uh, it, it will be a rocky ride. We are already in the middle of a rocky ride, but I, th- I think we can come out the other side. And I think people are still going to want places like yours. They're still going to want to be in amongst crowds and just in, enjoy themselves. It's it's having the people to match the product, isn't it? Without that, you can you can you can have the best thing in the world. But I think you know the interaction is what people are realizing. It creates memories, and and without that. Um, you know, like you say, it's been thousands of years where it's it's gonna it's gonna come back. It will come back. When I don't know, but I think then maybe it's a reset for the positive that people actually think. You know, I don't want that to ever go away again. Yeah, yeah. I think it will make us um, it will make us appreciate it more definitely. And I think one of the things I, I was seeing um, before this this whole crisis kicked off. There was questions about kind of oversupply in, in some cities. You know, we'd all seen casual dining take a take a real wobble because they just expanded too fast and oversaturated the market. And um, there was a phrase that uh, a guy from Cottonopolis, a bar in Manchester, yep. came up with this in uh, an interview in Imbibe magazine. But he talks about the death of mediocrity. And I thought that was a really, really interesting way of, of looking at it, that the there was so many people out there in the marketplace and the audience was so discerning and definite and well-informed as to what it did and didn't want that you couldn't get away with just peddling a mediocre product anymore. If you were going to do pizza or you were going to do Indian street food or you were going to do cocktails or you were going to make the coolest space just to sit and co-work and watch the world go by, whatever your thing is, you've got to be brilliant at it. You can't just you know roll it out by numbers. With no, with no kind of soul and no attention to detail. If it's not, it goes back to this idea of Google and people searching for the best. Maybe you're not quite the best, but if you're not one of the best in whatever your given field is for that audience, you're going to get found out. Um, the idea where we were just, you know, grateful to have for the sake of argument, you turn up in a small town or a city you don't know and see a Pizza Express and go, oh, thank God, that'll be okay. Yeah. Those days have gone, really, you know, because we're all straight on our phones going, like you did with me, I'm going to the Peak District. Where should I eat? Oh, you should go to the Pack Horse. Exactly. You know, we—that's what we do now. No one just blunders around going, "Oh, you know, thank goodness there's a there's a chain which isn't brilliant, but at least I know it's going to be relatively reliable." Yeah. People are too well informed and they they care too much. And um, I like to think when everything does come back again, that people will be even more attuned to what they like and why they like it. It's almost like a huge period of self-reflection. Yeah. Why am I missing restaurants? Why do I want to go back to a coffee shop? You know, you end up kind of thinking about it. And I think it's really going to make people, yes, appreciative, but not blindly appreciative. I think it will make us chase out the good stuff even better, even more. Yeah, I think so. And I th- think with the Pacos as well, that when I mentioned to them that you'd sent me down there, the personality to it, the, the, yeah. they were absolutely made up. Um, so when I said, oh, yeah. you're not going to get that in a... In a in a branded place, you know, it's kind of like eat your food, boom, leave, no interaction. Yeah. I think having yeah. that story as all part of it, where you've got the link between the actual operator and the, the people in there, the guest, you know, the, it, it's, it all links to what you're saying, I think. Obviously, once this is all over, where where is first on your list to go? Hawksmoor. Really? Hawksmoor is my first place to go. Yeah. I, I love Hawksmoor. I, ju- I just think it is... It's brilliant on every level. Um, there's there's a there's an attention to detail and brilliance in there that pleases the nerd in me. But ultimately, 
it's just a big plate of steak and chips and a bottle of red wine and that pleases me as well there's like a kind of high culture low culture thing i always say it's a little like a pixar movie that there's levels of sophistication in there for the adults but the kids will laugh because someone gets a pie in the face or the pants fall down and uh i think hawks more brilliantly is like a kind of pixar restaurant in the you know the the serious nerds they spot all the little references and all the little details and they know they're in safe hands. Whereas to someone who maybe doesn't know or care that much, all they know is it's just steak and chips and it's probably the best steak and chips they've ever had. And uh, the front house is brilliant. Going back to our point before, it's, you know, the atmosphere is so important, that interaction and that service and the front house is wonderful. And uh, I, d- I do love it there. And I think it was probably the last place I went to eat before shutdown. So I think there's a certain symmetry that it should be the first place I go back to once uh, once we get normality back again. That's cool. Uh, you're taking the one on Deansgate, right? Yeah, Deansgate, yeah. Hawksmore, Manchester. Hawksmore, Manchester. Well, hopefully you can go back there some point this year. And when, when international things lifted, where would, you, where would you be heading? There's probably two places that, um, that we want to go. We've been going to Spain quite regularly. We go to uh, Formentera with the kids every year. She's just wonderful, just off the coast of Ibiza. And uh, we went to Girona, which was fabulous. Went to uh, El Cella de Can Roca, uh, which was uh, sensational. And I've kind of got a hankering that I, I want to go to Bilbao. I hate following the crowd. So I know San Sebastián will be off the scale sensational but I also know that everyone and their dog has been yammering on about going there for like the last 10 years so I almost out of sheer contrariness don't want to go now and what I like about Bilbao is it it has a lot of of restaurants really similar style and similar standard to those that you get in San Sebastian but it has a lot less tourism Bilbao you've got all the all the kind of art and culture of the big city as well um it's meant to be a fantastic city so I I fancy going to uh, Bilbao and then I want to go back to New York I haven't been to New York since, um, well, since Jack was 18 months old, probably for 15 years, Sophie and I haven't been back to New York. I mean, it was, it was in its pomp around about the turn of the millennium. It was just, it was just off the scale. And uh, it's, it's got a special place in our heart. Brilliant. Well, hopefully we can use this podcast as, a, as an advert for the Creative Independent North, I think. And it's been great having you on. So I really appreciate your time, Tom. And you know, thank you very much. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it, mate. Well, guys, thanks again for listening and a big thanks for Tom for coming on. Uh, if you want to catch Tom on Instagram, some great pictures of the Peak District on there. It's at Tom Hetherington. Or for updates on the Northern Restaurant and Bar Show, it's NRB Manchester on Twitter or Instagram. As always, you can catch me on Faz Mangoes or mattyfarrell.co.uk. Hopefully we've got a great insight into the thriving, independent northern hospitality scene in this episode. Next episode, we're going all the way to Melbourne for Ampower, who is the co-founder of Pilgrim Restaurant, but also one of the original members of the Movember movement. It's great insight into some mental health awareness in this one, uh, which I think is very poignant at this moment in time. So hopefully we'll be on time, fatherhood permitting. What do you think? Yep. <laughs> we'll be on time next Friday. So, uh, as always, stay safe and see you soon, guys. Cheers. Bye.